Right, getting to the SFS book of Bolivia. First, because it's a day later from where I started. So I've done this podcast in two days. Usually I do it in one, but I do it in two days because something come up. So left it, the audio book for today, which all my SFS podcasts come in parts anyway. So just before now, something really fucked fucked up happened. Well, not too fucked up, but uh, odd. And obviously it's me, it's going to be odd anyway. I just had a fucking workout in the gym. And I packed my bag so fucking much. I'm in the fucking dressing room, surrounded by people. Trying to pack my bag up. And put all the shit back in. But I had some extra shit to put in. And my whole fucking bag teared apart. So I had to walk half a fucking mile with my bag teared apart. Some fucking shower gel in my hand. A fucking towel from the shower in my fucking hand. Some fucking shorts. And some gym fucking top. Straight in my hand with a fucking bag that's been dismembered. With all kinds of fucking holes and openings in it. Reminds me of when I... A couple of years ago, actually, when I was carrying this massive, big uh, box, big cardboard box. It was like an open box when you put plants in. And obviously the plants were cannabis plants. There was about 20 of them, about half grown, because a mate given me to grow in my grandma's greenhouse. So I walked from... This upper mill town to Greenfield town. Through the fucking high street road. They don't. They walk behind me the motherfuckers. And then someone stops me. Someone I know. There's some girl I know and says. Hey. Oh gee. Is that your ganja plants? I go. How the fuck do you know? You see. I can see the fucking plants. I get out you fucking bastard. You're on the fucking high street there. With fucking. I must have had 20 half grown fucking ganja plants. I walked all the way fucking home. Which was about. Two miles, if you know where Upper Mill to Greenfield is, to the greenhouse. Because I said, yeah, I want the plants because I was going to get half the fucking cut. So I got half the fucking plants. Two fucking cars stopped me on the way. I think a police drive past but didn't notice me. But I was on the main fucking road and the people were just saying, hey, hey, oh, gee, is that your fucking ganja plants? Like in a joking way, but it really was my fucking ganja plants. So kind of that just reminded me of what just happened then with my fucking bag getting all fucked up and me having to carry my fucking shower towel and fucking deodorant and fucking shower gel and fucking gym gear in my hand with my teared up bag in the fucking over in my back. Oh, God. At least I'm back. Right then, let's get into the story of Bolivia. Now, Hershey, do not, do not look very distressed. I put on a program made by the dogs for you, Hershey. So don't look very um, upset. I know you'll be going out in an hour. You'll be going out in an hour, my, my shaman. Gulai. Do you know what gulai means? Chinese for come here. And shamodi swear means good dog. Just put it in your translate app on your Google app, translate. So, gulai means come here in Chinese and shamodi kwe 
means good dog. Just thought you'd like to know. I'm not getting into Chucky and Deuce because I've already done that book. I'm getting into Bolivia! The beautiful prison, Thomas the Tour Guide of Bolivia, prison, the most beautiful prison on earth, but the worst prison on earth as well. Now let's get into this. Yes, Hershey, I know. It's chill on your bones. That's Thomas the Tour Guide, here we go, it's Thomas the Tour Guide, taking it slow. Each of the wolves wanted to meet me at once, licking absolutely every inch of my face. I quickly learned to keep my mouth closed during these greetings, which was extremely... This might be the last part, or probably second to last part. As here we go, no chapter skipped, no nothing. Mike goes crazy. Throughout all this, the parties with the toilets continued. We partied a lot. Sometimes I even got sick of partying. I developed major problems with my sinuses, head sinuses. My nose was permanently running out the blood when I blew it. I had great difficulty getting to sleep. I got severe headaches from the last days on end. Apart from these symptoms, I thought that sniffing cocaine was relatively harmless until I watched Mike, the chef, completely fucking lose it. He was drunk and high that night, but since he had the perfect memory, he remembered our conversation word for word. He laughed about it afterwards, but at the time it was scary. It happened shortly after Anna, Mike's Bolivian girlfriend, had broken up with him. They had been together before he was sent to prison, but had separated over a small incident. When Anna began to visit him in San Pedro, the relationship started up again. They had only been back together for two months. However, before Mike got himself so twisted up with jealousy, imagining what she did on the outside, that he destroyed the relationship. Every time she came to visit him, he would abuse her in public. You have been with this time. Uh, who have you been with this time? On one occasion, Jack and I put Mike aside after Anna left the dish. I said, Hey Mike, chill, chill down. We told him, You can't treat her like that, man. She'll leave you. I don't care. She's a puta. But Jack stood up to him. Well, please now, Mike, he said. She's beautiful. What's she doing in here with you? I will never know. Mike glared at him. I think Jack wanted Anna for himself. Because whenever she was around, he took his sunglasses off and moved his head around to different angles so that the light would catch his green contact. That girl loves you. Why are you just so paranoid, Mike? 
Mac told him. But he insisted he wasn't. He's fucking with somebody is. I don't know. He is. I can smell it on here. I turned out. It turned out I was lied. He was paranoid. But I didn't find out the full extent of his paranoia until the night he actually went fucking nuts and bananas. Good mix, but deadly in the brain. Eventually Anna got sick of the way Mike treated her and said she would never come back to see him. She left her answering machine on and didn't return his calls. Mike's relatives had given him some money to buy a better room. Instead of upgrading, he sold his existing room in San Martin and then went on a three-day binge with the cocaine. At four in the morning on the third night, he came knocking at my door. I didn't want to let him in because having visited after one in the morning was against the section rules and could cause big trouble with the delegate. However, Mike said that he needed to talk to me urgently. It hadn't even occurred to me to wonder how he got from San Martin into Almos when the section gates were locked. I said, what's wrong? What happened to you? I asked as soon as I opened the door. His clothes were covered in dirt, especially his knees, and his hands were cut. The clothing's cleaning! Fucking lazy Bolivian police are! Never clean it! He snarled, striding into my room. Too busy stealing our money! That's nothing got drugs! Now, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? He demanded. His eyes are darting everywhere. I said, where to? I laughed, knowing exactly what he meant, but thinking he was joking. He looked at me straight in the face and said, You take her! I know you got her in here. I heard her voice when I started outside. I heard her voice. You got her, you bastard. Mike pointed out to me threateningly. Between the eyes, his finger was shaking. What have you done with her, Thomas Mufgadian? When I saw the look on Mike's face, I started playing games. Every muscle in his neck was tensed and the veins in his forehead were throbbing. His eyes were as big and wide, and he was sweating heavily. I calmly said, she's not here, Mike. Why would she be in here, Mike? Come on now, I said quietly as not to agitate him. I also kept repeating his name softly which usually calms people down. Reasoning with him only made him angrier. He started searching everywhere for his girlfriend. There were two small rooms in my apartment. Nowhere could you hide a person. But Mike ran from the kitchen back into my bedroom, then back again thinking I was changing a hiding spot each time he went into each different room. He looked under the bed between the curtains and even between the mattress. It was the first time I'd seen Mike so confused and it scared me. He was delusional. I said, calm down, Mike. Mike, you're being silly. How could you be under the carpet, Mike? But even when he was crazy, Mike was still totally switched on. On the next trip back from the kitchen, he was clutching my new kitchen knife. He said, fuck you, my friend, and stop saying my name, will you? 
I study psychology too, and this is not a hijack situation. It's kidnapping, and you're the fucking kidnapper. He held the knife up under my chin. Now what have you done to her? What have you done to her? You be fucking her. You be fucking her. I stopped arguing with him, helped search for Anna. All the time, Mike kept pointing the knife at me in case I tried to escape. Eventually, I got him to leave by playing along with the delusion. I said, maybe she's back in your room. Maybe she wanted to surprise you. Mike looked at me and then left in a hurry, taking my knife with him. I locked the door behind him and leaned against it. It wasn't long before Mike realized that he no longer had a room to go back to because he sold it. He came straight back across the roof, thinking I tricked him because I had stolen his girlfriend. This time, the delegate heard him coming and was already outside when Mike landed on the Alamos roof. Get down! hissed the delegate, trying to keep his voice low as so not to wake anyone. There was a strange rule in our section that prohibited anyone except the delegate to climbing on the roof after 9 p.m. No! he insisted. All I call the police, But Mike refused to obey and the delegate was forced to send for the mayor. Major. Mike was lucky that the major who was on duty that night was reasonable. Otherwise, the police might have shot him for attempting to escape. The Major also tried to persuade Mike to climb down, but he would not come. So the Major decided to go up after him. The chase that followed was like a stunt scene in the Jackie Chan movie. The Major went around the San Martin with his men to intercept Mike. But then Mike jumped across the roof to the Alamos. Then when the Major came back around to our side, Mike leapt back again from roof to roof. Every time he created a two meter gap between the sections, he would make a loud yelping sound like a wounded animal. He made so much noise, what with his yelling and crashing about on the metal roof. The inmates from both sections woke up and came out to see what was the matter. Jack appeared by my side in his pink pajamas and fluffy rabbit slippers. He said, Look at that piece of Mileta! He's overdosed! He said, blowing his nose and rubbing his eyes under his sunglasses. What time is it anyway, Tom? None of the police there were brave enough to get up there and bring Mike down. Some parts of the roof were rusted and if you slipped and fell the drop was three stories down. But Mike was so high that the danger didn't rally him. He made the jump successfully every time, screaming him out something crazy that no one could understand. And once he realized there was an audience, he even started to jump back and forth to show off, bowing dramatically after each successful leap. A few of the inmates applauded until the Major started getting mad. The policeman tried everything to get Mike off the roof, but Mike would not listen. He said that if anyone came up, they would have to fight him man to man. 
I didn't tell the Major that Mike also had my knife in my kitchen in his back pocket in case I got into trouble too. Eventually, the Major posted two guards in St. Martin and Alamos to prevent Mike from crossing any other rules and escaping. The guards had to wait there all night and all the following morning until Mike climbed down on his own. As they finally got Mike under control, they locked him in La Molala for four days. When he got out, he wanted to come to stay with me, but I said he couldn't. I didn't tell him that I was afraid he might go crazy again. He went back to the punishment section for somewhere to sleep until his relatives sent him more money to buy a room. After that incident, he shaved his head, told everyone he was 10 years younger and decided to quit using cocaine. After Mike went crazy, I decided to slow down on the cocaine. The amount I was doing was way too much for my system to take. But also I promised myself many times to stop. But I kept taking it all the time I said I would stop. We may have been locked in prison, but there was always something to celebrate. In addition to weddings, birthdays, baptisms inside the jail, the prisoners celebrated all the traditional festivals and holidays on the outside. Christmas, Easter, La Noche, Di San Juan, La Entrada di Gran Poda, Bolivia's Independence Day, Peru's Independence Day, Ecuador's Independence Day. In fact, any country's Independence Day or any ex-girlfriend's birthday that we could remember. As if there was ever a dispute as to the correct date, we would have two parties. Just to be sure that we hadn't been miscelebrated. Basically, the inmates used any excuse to throw a party, but one day stood out as being particularly special prisoner's day because it was our day. On the 24th of September every year, people on the outside were supposed to spare us a fort for us. All the unfortunate inmates incarcerated around the nation, even if they didn't think of us. It was certainly our biggest party of the year. That was the day we prisoners were allowed to really let loose. The section hired bands and we danced and drank all day and night and all the next day. You could do anything you wanted to and the police wouldn't bust you. Besides, they were usually too drunk themselves. One year, the major on duty even sent me a few grams of coke. And because you could do anything, there was no limit to the number of tourists I could have to spend the night. The biggest ever prisoner's day celebration occurred during my third year, which was also when the tours were at the peak. I started inviting people I met on the tours in the weeks beforehand. Others I invited from the tours on the actual day. Of course, of the afternoon, the small crowd in my room grew bigger and bigger. 
When we did head the count at four in the morning afternoon, the total of tourists came to forty-five. About half of them stayed at night. We tried to do another head count at two in the morning, but no one would sit still. Everyone was moving around, talking and dancing. There was cocaine everywhere. It was absolutely out of control. There wasn't enough space in my room for everyone to be in there at once. So they took it in shifts. There was a constant line of traffic going up and down my wooden staircase as the tourists came in to change up before on cocaine returning to the main party in the courtyard where the band was playing. But some of them got stuck talking and forgot to leave so everyone now and then I had to drag people out of there to make a space for new tourists to arrive. I eventually gave up on making the lines of coke for everyone, myself. It was too slow. No sooner had I finished making ten lines that I had to make another ten for the tourists. If things had stayed like that, I would have no chance to go downstairs and socialize myself. I said, Here man, you seem to know what you're doing, make a line. Dropping 10 grams onto a CD case and putting a guy from New Zealand in charge of it. His eyes were already popping out of his head and his hands were shaking. But he was proud that I'd chosen him over the other tourists and set about carefully carving up the clusters. He seemed to like his new job and settled in for the night. The fact that he would be in the same spot making lines of coke the entire time didn't worry him in the slightest and it didn't stop him from talking which he did a lot of anyway when i came back upstairs for my next line the conversation in the room had stopped completely i assumed they had taken too much coke and i tried to liven him up i said who wants to come downstairs and meet some of my bolivian friends huh but no one would look me in the eye Everyone looked very guilty, none more so than the New Zealander, who was kneeling on the ground holding two credit cards in his hand. Something bad had happened. He said, I'm really sorry, mate. It was my fault. I admit it. I'll pay for it all. He looked down at the carpet in front of him where the CD with all the coke had fallen and started trying to scoop it up using the cards. I find we can save most of it, but there's bits of that in the carpet, and it, just tell me how much I owe you. We always have to chip in, added the British girl, won't we? The others nodded, but I could see them trying to calculate how many days travelling budget 10 grams of coke would cost them. They would all have to cut their holidays short. I said, stop it! What are you doing, you fucking idiot? I shook my head and took a step towards the New Zealander. He called back, rude perhaps that I was about to hit him. I said, hey, give me those! I pointed out the credit cards, he handed them to me, thinking it might be some special way of recovering the split cocaine that he did know about. 
Then I grabbed hold of my broom and swept the coke out of the door. I said, it's only coke. It's not like spilled beer or anything, I said. He looked at me in complete shock. The others didn't know how to react either. They thought I'd gone crazy. But I said, But as a punishment, you have to make ten more lines and make them quickly. I handed the cards back to him, along with ten more grands and a different CD cover to work with. You've lost us a lot of valuable uh, time, I said. I probably could have said most of the codes like he had suggested, but this was during the time I was working in the cocaine laboratories at night, so I had 50 more grams of it sitting in my cupboard, and then hadn't cost me even a cent. Besides, I did it for a laugh. I knew that everyone in that room would be telling the story everywhere they went for the rest of their lives. The poor New Zealander was so relieved that he would have been happy to stay there until sunrise, serving cocaine to everyone. But by then the party was in full swing and he couldn't keep up with the demand. Instead of having him online making duty, I handed out my entire CD collection so that people could do it themselves. However, there was not enough CD cases to go around and some people had to resort to cassette tapes to put the coke on, which weren't anywhere near as good as CD cases. Eventually, my room got so full that people were spilling out onto the landing or sitting on the staircase, chopping up coke and drinking, whatever they could get their hands on. No one was interested now in dancing or meeting any of the Bolivians. They just wanted to talk. I couldn't even get into my own room, and in the end I gave up and let them do what they fucking wanted. With not even enough room to stand up, it would have been impossible to find a space for people to sleep. Luckily, no one was interested in sleeping. They were way too high. The party kept getting bigger and bigger. People had never met before they decided they would go traveling together started the following day. Others, who had nothing in common whatsoever, decided they were best friends and would visit each other on the other side of the world. A few small romances between the backpackers and sprang up over the course of the evening. I even got one of the Canadian tourists, the blonde guy who was really shy and couldn't have been more than 20. Deeply involved in the conversation with one of the Bolivian wives, who must have been about 50 and had no teeth. She was feeding him chicha, and they were flirting outrageously. He hadn't spoken a word of Spanish when he came in, but now he was jumping away at it a million miles an hour, and she was enraptured by what he was saying. I thought you couldn't speak Spanish. She interrupted him. I can't. I can't, but I'm fluent now. It just came to me at once. Be careful, I warned him. Her husband has fallen asleep drunk, and I was worried that they might wake up and wonder where his wife was, or that the inmates might talk. 
It's okay. She's teaching me to speak. Question two. Later, I caught the two of them dancing together. He was enjoying himself, but I didn't want him to get too carried away. I said, I thought you said you couldn't dance. As I went past. I can't. Whatever fast learner. This stuff is excellent. The party kicked on till the next until seven o'clock the next morning. The New Zealander was still sitting on the same position on my bed, chopping up lines, even though everyone had stopped talking to him. I wanted to keep going also, but once it was daylight, many of the tourists suddenly remembered that they were in a prison and became paranoid. Some panicked and wanted to leave immediately, but the mayor, who had just come on duty, made them wait until after nine o'clock and then exit in small groups so it wouldn't be so obvious. It was clear that none of them had slept and 22 drunk, coked up foreigners pouring out of Bolivian prison during peak hour traffic looking like they had been to a nightclub might lose him his job. I took the tourists to the gates in groups and said, Thanks, Thomas, this is the best night of my life, declared my new New Zealand friend, saying, Thanks. This is my best night of my life. Even though the sun was shining and the music had stopped, he had done so much coke that the party was still going on in his own head. One of the girls who was in a similar state gave the maid mayor a big hug when she got through all the gates, and all his men laughed. I was extremely tired, but with all the drugs still in my bloodstream, it was several joints of weed and many hours before I managed to get some sleep. The day after that, the truce with the police ended and they went back to busting us as per usual. It was one hell of a party though. I had a two-day chicha hangover to prove it. It may sound strange, but I never had friends like the tourists I met while in prison. I had always had friends on the outside who were ready to party whenever I turned up with a few kilos of cocaine in my suitcase. But where had they been when I needed them? Who had sent me money when they had heard that I was stuck in a Bolivian jail? Who had bothered to find out where I was? Doing time is real test of friendship. None of my old friends passed that test. Maybe none of them had even noticed that I was missing. To me, that made it even more special that people I had never met before came to visit me and did stick by me. Most of the travelers who visited me were just passing through La Paz and couldn't visit more than once or twice. However, many of them stayed in contact by letters and email. I glued the postcards that they sent me from all over the world onto my wall. I received mail from the US, Australia, Canada, Germany, England, Israel, Turkey and Japan. 
Whenever I felt sad, I would read what the tourist had written to me. I would soon feel better again. Even though I only met many of these people once, I knew that they were real friends. You know how I knew? I had nothing to give them. I couldn't give them money. I couldn't give them status. I couldn't take them to fancy places and buy drinks for them. All I had were the stories on who I was, and that was enough for them to want to stay in contact. For the first time in my life, that was enough. However, many of the tourists did a lot more than just remain in contact. They came back to see me a third or fourth time. Some even postponed their travel plans in order to stay with me. In fact, one group of backpackers actually seemed to get stuck in La Paz, coming into the prison to do coke with me every day for weeks on end, until the money ran out. In my first year as Thomas the tour guide, which was my second year in prison, there were Yashida and her friends from Israel, but in the following years there were others too who hung around for months and months sleeping in the prison and going in and out whenever they pleased. Till and Caroline, a hippie couple from Wales, were absolute, were my absolute favourites. Although they didn't take cocaine because they said it had too many synthetic chemicals, they came to South America to go trekking, and on the way they collected all types of herds and natural hallucinogens such as the Anushesha plant. On one trip they had hiked out into this Chilean desert in order to harvest the San Pedro cactus, which is a shaman used for its spiritual healing during special ceremonies that last up to 12 hours. Till and Caroline probably could have paid for some of that had been prepared to save themselves the hassle, but they said it was better energy if you brought it yourself. In between these hikes, they always came back to see me. During my time in San Pedro, those two flew back to South America three times and must have visited me on least a hundred occasions. I lost count of how many nights they had stayed and how many postcards they sent me when they were out of the country. There was no way I could repay any of these people for what they gave me when I was in San Pedro. There was only one time when I got the chance to show someone how much it meant. The tour business wasn't always booming, it went up and down according to the seasons. I also discovered that the restaurant business was dependent on the outside economy. When times were tough, the inmates would cook for themselves in order to save money, and my income would drop to almost zero. Jerome was one of the tourists who came to see me many times during my more difficult times. He was tall, blonde Australian and he didn't come for the cocaine, in fact he was strongly against drugs. He came back because he was amazed by the way the prisoners and their families lived and survived. 
and he wanted to see more. He also felt sorry for me. When I first met Jerome, he knew that I was desperate for any help I could get. At the end of his visit, he left me his sunglasses and promised to bring food for me and presents from the San Pedro children the following day. He turned up a week later. Hey man, I thought you had left the country. And I said, when I saw him coming through the gates the second time, he had a big smile because the guards had recognised him and let him in without pain. Yeah mate, I, I'm a bit late eh? He said from the corner of his mouth, pointing to his watch. Sorry about that. Got caught in traffic. He winked at me and I couldn't help smiling. Jerome kept a straight face the whole time I knew him. So I often couldn't tell if he was joking until he winked. I said thanks for coming man, shaking his hand and then giving him a hug. It means a lot to me, you know. Yeah, look mate, we're in a mild prison. There are all people watching us. You've been on the Charlie again, haven't ya? He shook his head at me and clicked loudly with his tongue. It will rot your, rot your brain, Thomas. No, i just woken up, I said, defending myself. But always, Jerome was always joking. Okay, okay, I believe you. Now, don't go getting all emotional on me again. But I brought you a few presents. Days. He held up a big bag of fruit and these. He jerked his head back towards the gate and winked again. Waiting on the other side was a four blonde Norwegian girls. Jerome had met them in at his hostel and persuaded them to come along. Looks like you could use a bit of bife, he said, reaching down to pick out the bunch of bananas that was falling out of the bag. I told them that you was Jamaican man. Is that okay, is that okay man? He said, trying to copy the way I spoke and tapping the largest banana in the bunch with the index finger. The Norwegians were too afraid to come to the gates. The lieutenant didn't help matters by telling him that the tourists were banned from entering. It took me a few minutes to convince the lieutenant to let them in and then a few minutes more to convince the girls that if it was safe to leave their passports with him. I said, welcome to San Pedro prison. When they were finally inside, I am Thomas the tour guide. But my usual joke didn't work. The four girls looked at me nervously, shifting awkwardly on the spot. I tried a different approach. We had a lot of fun last week, didn't we, Jerome? But when I turned to Jerome's support, his face had gone completely pale. He was staring at the ground. I asked, what's wrong, man? Thinking he was about to be sick. My wallet? They taken my wallet? He said quietly shuffling his feet in case he was standing on top of them. I said, who has? Are you sure? Check your pockets. I have. Five times. Who took it? 
I said, I don't know. I didn't see. It happened just a second ago when you were getting the girls in. They were all knocking against me. It was in his pocket right here. He pointed to his grey cargo pants, the same type that all tourists were wearing at the time. The zipper on one of the pockets was undone. The wallet was definitely gone. It was the first time anyone had been robbed in all my time as a tour guide. I looked around at the inmates in the courtyard trying to spot the guilty face. But it could have been any one of them. Do you think there's any chance? Don't you think there's any chance? Asked Jerome. Seeing that I was looking around. I don't know. I do my best. I was searching for two or three known pickpocketers who had been tagged who had targeted Bolivian visitors before. I saw one of them, Kimasho, sitting on the garden shelf, deeply involved in a conversation. He must have sensed me staring at him, but he didn't look up. Well, they can keep the money, said Jerome. I don't care about money. I just need my credit cards back. I'm stuffed without them. I asked, how much money did you have? My eyes were still watching Camacho. And what colour is your wallet? It's green. There were exactly 1,000 Bolivianos in it. I withdrew it from the morning from the ITM. 1,000 Bolivianos? I had expected him to say 50 or maybe 100. San Pedro was safe, but it was still a prison. Jerome already felt stupid enough, so I didn't say anything. Instead, I waved to my bodyguards who were standing by, waiting to start the tour. Lucho Cachina, come with me. He left Jerome and the girls with the head taxi tie and marched straight over to Camacho and demanded the wallet back. That was my brother, he said looking up innocently. What's with you? He was a good actor, but there was something in the way he moved his eyes that told me he was lying. I said, you got three seconds! Putting my hands on his shoulder so he couldn't get up. Lucho and Katijina moved in closer to park the guard's view. The inmate, Camacho, had been talking and stood up and left. What you talking about? Camacho protested weakly. I think you and I need to have a little chat. I said nodding for my men to take him to my room in private. Lucho took one elbow and Katagina took the other. They led Camacho through the courtyard and up to my room. Camacho knew better than to make a scene. Once we reached my room, he realized he was completely on his own. He kept his cool though. After we searched his pockets and found nothing, I began to doubt whether he had done it. I might have been wrong, but I couldn't afford to show any weakness, especially not in front of my men. I punched him in his stomach and he cried out, struggling to get free of Lucho and Katina. You're making a big mistake! Injuries! He said, I hit him again. 
You pay for this, you can't. I punched him in his stomach again. When he recovered his breath, he spat on me and swore loudly, Listen! I cut my hand in the ear. No one in here can hear you. Then I slapped it across his face. We placed him on a metal tail and strapped him to it with electrical tape. Kamako still refused to confess. You can't kill me! He said, greeting his people. People know where I am. You gonna pay for this, motherfucker. Camacho was tough. Even with his mouth taped up, he managed to scare Lucho and Katagina with his eyes. He looked at them as if to say, And that goes for you too as well. It worked. Lucho and Katagina called me into the kitchen where he couldn't hear us. They said, you better be sure about this, Thomas, said Kachina, forcefully accusing someone of a extremely serious offense in San Pedro. I said, the gringo said the money doesn't matter. I explained to them, he just wants his credit cards back. How much? asked Lucio. I told them the amount and he nodded forcefully. I could see him trying to divide 1,000 by free evenly. However, Katagina wasn't convinced even with the money. Fine, I said, struggling my soul. We let him go then. But as soon as the guards hear about this, no more tourists will be allowed in. I paused to let this information sink in. And whenever tourists hear that San Pedro is dangerous, they won't want to come in anyway. It's simple. No wallet means no tourist. No more tolls means no more money. After that, I stood back and let my bodyguards do their work. They pounded Camacho until he nodded his head frantically to tell us he wanted to give in. Lucio ripped the tape from around his mouth, taking hundreds of hair with it. Camacho said, Okay, okay, I'll show you where it is, he said, spitting blood onto his chin. Just as he confessed, there was a knock at the door. Katagina and Lucho covered Camacho's mouth again and dragged him into the kitchen. Who is it? I asked, trying to see him sound relaxed. It was only Jerome. I told him I'd be five minutes. But he had become impatient and brought the girl to my room. I let them in. Hi, man. Good news. And I said, We're going to get your wallet back. But Jerome didn't say anything. He stopped in the middle of the room and the Norwegian girl was following him, knocked on his back. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god, she explained. When she saw what the room was looking at, Quick, this man's hurt! She rushed forward to attend to Camacho. One of the other Norwegian turned to me and said coldly, Do you have any ice please? I pointed to the refrigerator. Jerome looked at me and shook his head. 
pretending he was disappointed with me for the benefit of the girls. I said, hey man, this is a prison, understand? Not wanting to look bad myself. I thought you said you needed your credit cards back. I did, Thomas, but I didn't say you had to torture someone to get them. I smiled and waited for Jerome to wink, but he didn't. He shook his head again. You just don't get it, do you, Thomas? While the Norwegians made a fuss over Camacho, Lucho and Kachina cut the electrical tape around his arms and legs, we left Lucho with Jerome and the girls in my room and went to collect the wallet from Camacho's friend in Prefecture. Camacho complained the whole way, calling me a gringo lover and a traitor. He said I wasn't a tour guide but a zookeeper. When we reached this section, he insisted that Kajina wait at the entrance because they were lookouts. Three of us entering together would look suspicious. Before we reached his friend's room where the wallet was being kept, Kamako made me an offer. Let's split the money 50-50. I won't say anything to Lucho or Kajina. Tell them that the money wasn't there. I didn't answer him. I tightened my grip on his elbow as we kept walking. On the way back, Katajina made me the same offer. Is it all there? He asked. Let me count it. I nodded and held out the wallet, then put it in the back of my pocket. I had already counted it, 10 notes of 100 Bolivianos with the ATM receipts still wrapped around them. Well? Well what? I snapped back at him. When he realized what I was thinking, he started to protest. You're not going to... But he couldn't finish his question as he knew the answer by my silence. But why? As all he could say as he chased after me up the stairs, putting his hand on my shoulder to slow me down. The money that Jerome and his girlfriend spent in one night out drinking could feed an entire family in San Pedro for a month. I could have used the money myself. I tried to think of how I could answer him, but all I could hear were Jerome's words and sarcastic voice playing over my mind. You just don't get it, do you, Thomas? I almost gave in, then I saw a little girl sitting by herself on the steps. Carefully peeling the skin from a piece of fruit, I looked at Katina. I don't know, he brought me some bananas, man, I said. They look like nice bananas.